One of the most desperate moments of my life happened when John Owen was three years old. Um, I was in the ER with him, and I had to lay him on his stomach uh, flat on the, the table there while a, and hold him down while an ER doctor took a big needle in a syringe and inserted into his spine to draw out fluid to test him for spinal meningitis. It was a desperate moment. Uh, about 10 days before that moment, uh, Jennifer and I were in Ethiopia uh, bringing home our son, James. And um, you've heard me talk about the Casey's before if you've been around here very long, but we have a, a family that's very dear to us, Bobby and Kathy Casey. Ka uh, Kathy has since passed away, um, but they were very dear to us, and they kept uh, John Owen while we went to Ethiopia. They, that's how much we love and trust this family, that this is who uh, we left John Owen with. And uh, 10 days before, while we were in Ethiopia and John Owen was with them, uh, Bobby's son, Daryl, was at their house, and uh, they were playing, and uh, Daryl's like kind of like a fun uncle figure, like he's actually kind of like the, the, the most perfect fun uncle figure, and they were in the floor wrestling around, doing whatever, but John Owen had been exposed to him, and shortly after, uh, Daryl got really, really sick, and he was actually taken to this very same ER, and this same crew of doctors and nurses down to like the ambulance driver who was there uh, that drove, drove Daryl there and they discovered that he had spinal meningitis and they airlifted him to the uh, Jewish hospital in Louisville where at the moment that this is happening with John Owen, um, Daryl is fighting for his life. And so we woke up on that Wednesday morning and uh, John Owen had a really high fever. Like, it was really high. High enough that we were like, um, something, something, something's wrong here. And so we take him to the, we take him to the uh, pediatrician. The pediatrician says, listen, if these symptoms happen, if he gets a really bad headache and he throws up, um, you need to take him to the ER. And they'd ask and ask, and we had told them they had been exposed to this or whatever. So, um, you know, we had been home, I think, three days from Ethiopia when he gets sick. And uh, like most pastors, I went to church, right? And so rather than being home with family, I'm at church. And Jennifer calls me, and um, I took off. I leave church because he had thrown up. I'm going to go get him. And then I got them to the hospital. And then we walk in, and they say, hey, what's wrong? And when we tell them, I mean, it was like... They rolled us out. They ushered us in. They, I mean, all hands on deck. Everybody was really, really worried. This was a desperate moment in my life. As we approach today's text, we're going to be back in the book of Luke, chapter 8. And we're going to see two people who were desperate. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 8. And here's the big truth that I want to start with for the, today. And I, this is what I want you to walk away from today's sermon with. And it's this. Is that when your situation seems desperate, place your faith in Jesus. 
when your, separate, when your situation seems desperate, there's going to be a lot of things that feel like options, a lot of things that you can place your faith, a lot of things that you can do, but the ultimate thing, the number one thing that you can do is place your faith in Jesus. We're going to start, pick it, we're going to pick up just where we left off last week. As we, we go there, remember, um, you know, we, we are going through the book of Luke and we're in this series where we're seeing God's power, we're seeing Jesus' authority uh, and his ability displayed on earth. And so we'll start reading at verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people, all the people, uh, why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, before we jump back in this text, and we begin going verse by verse, taking it apart, here's some things that I just want you uh, to note, I think this is an, an important part, and I think this can almost be a sermon in itself. Is that Jairus and his daughter are in two very different social classes than the woman who touched Jesus and was healed. You see, Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue. He would have been a very well-respected man. And he would have been a man that had privilege. Everywhere he would go in that, in that town, he would be known as this is one of the rulers of the synagogue. This man is in high standing. He had power. He had authority. He, he helped control what happened in that synagogue. And this was an important piece of the social uh, community and for the, for the Jewish people. And by the way, I think that both Jairus and the woman who was healed here were both Jews. I think, I think Luke would have told us if she was a Gentile 
And we know Jairus obviously is because he's the ruler of the synagogue. And so they're the same religion, they're the same ethnicity, but they're different in social class. Not only that, Jairus had family. And because of his power and, and his privilege, his, his daughter would have been a, a, a benefactor of that. She would have benefited from the things that he had. Yet, here you see this woman that comes up and touches Jesus' robe, and she's a social outcast. Um, this is what we know from the scriptures. She was considered unclean. Um, and we go back and look at Levitical law, and we looked at what the, the Jewish people would, would have believed as prescribed by the Old Testament, and then even the stuff that they would have added on uh, in, in their, their customs that we can read about in extra-biblical um, text. What we see is that if someone's bleeding like that, if someone's got that kind of open wound issue, they're considered unclean. And so much like a leper, we kind, of, we kind of think through like, hey, what would that mean for a leper to be an outcast to live in a leper society? This would have been much kind of, kind of her reality, that she would be living in this situation, that she was a, an outcast. And so she would have to even announce when she walked into certain places, unclean, unclean. She would have to tell people, I, I've got this issue, I've got this bleeding. Wherever that bleeding may have been or however it might have been, it was her issue. Many of the people who would have said that to would have looked at her and said, well, the reason that she has this issue is her sin. It's something that she did. It's her unworthiness. It's her sinfulness that's caused this issue. And so people would have looked down on her. We also know that she was a poor lady because it says that every bit of money that she had, she spent trying to be healed. Right? And so we don't know. This lady could have actually been in a, in a higher sect, in a higher uh, class. And if you think about caste systems, she would have been in, in one of the tiers in a caste system. But her situation now has lowered her social class. And so you've got one person that, that people may look at and look at as the outcast, the, the poor lady who had nothing, who was unclean. And you look at Jairus who was a, a ruler in the synagogue and had social favor. But both of them ended up in the exact same situation. And that's desperate. That's desperate. It, it, it end up in a place of despair. That in itself will preach that in the place of despair, both of them, in their situations, Jesus stops and he shows mercy and grace to. And so this is what we, we have to know. Is that, man, in the gospel, there is no Jew or Greek, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That, that there is no partiality with Jesus Christ. He doesn't look down on the wealthy and look at them more favorably. That he looks to all who are weary and heavy laden and says, come to me and I will give you rest. And man, the people of God must follow Jesus in that. And that must be who we are. No matter how much money you have. 
you can still end up in a desperate place. And there are things that your money will not buy. This lady could have been very wealthy for all we know, but we know that her money could not buy her healing. And she ended up there in desperation. Both in the same situation. So now, let's begin to just work through this uh, verse by verse and begin to take it apart. Now, when Jesus returned, it says the crowd welcomed him. And so, uh, returned, returned from where? Remember, he had calmed a storm on the way after he had preached. He was was going over... uh, to the Gerasenes opposite of Galilee. He was on the Sea of Galilee. Um, he had healed a man with demons, a man they called Legion. Um, they cast out these demons. They rejected him. They sent him back. And so here he goes back. And the crowd welcomed him. These people wanted Jesus there. This was different from the Gerasenes. The, the, in Galilee, they wanted him there. And so they were waiting. They were anticipating him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, this would have been an important position. Um, man, this, the synagogue is like kind of an outpost of the, the temple there in Jerusalem. And so the, the synagogue, this is where local family was, would, would come to worship there. So in this town, he was important. And he, he ruled there. And so here you have this important man who sees Jesus and runs up to him and he falls at Jesus' feet. He strips down his pride. He's the ruler. And all of a sudden, he's falling at Jesus' feet. I I would have you just back up, not very far, um, into um, chapter 7 and chapter 8. And what you're going to see... you're going to see that this is a woman who falls at Jesus' feet. It's Mary Magdalene. And with her tears, and, 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 and anoints his feet with oil in her tears. And she washes his feet with her hair. Like there's a falling at his feet. That's a, that's a pronouncing that like he is Lord. You are master. You are God. I'm not worthy to come to you. He didn't come trying to buy him. He didn't, he didn't try bringing him money to come. He came begging. He fell at his feet. And so here this ruler, this, this, this important man running at Jesus, falling at his feet, and then not just like nonchalantly mentioning, hey, could you come to my house and heal my daughter, but rather imploring him to come to his house. It's like begging him. It says, for he had only one daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, if he'd had five daughters, I don't know if, I, like, I wonder... That, it's like, Luke, um, buddy, I think he would have ran anyway. I don't know, but there's a note. He only had one daughter, and so here he is. And so here's my first big idea this morning. Is that desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, normally when I come up with big ideas, um, I, I see them directly in the text, and I, and I come up with that big idea, and it relates to my big truth. It's like kind of, kind of here's my big truth, and... And I see all of this in the, in the text, and often I like to quote scripture. This might be the only time that I've ever quoted a Greek physician. Now, you've heard this statement before, haven't you? Desperate times call for desperate measures. It actually came from Hippocrates, a Greek physician that was born and lived and died 375 B.C. 
And so this would have been a known statement even at the time of Jesus. And here's where it came from. It actually came from a statement that he made because he's a physician. Extreme diseases require extreme treatment. You may have heard the oath that doctors take. It's called the Hippocratic Oath. If you're a doctor, you have to take the Hippocratic Oath, meaning uh, you will do whatever it takes to heal somebody, that you'll do within, within ethical means what it would take to heal. And so that is the idea here, here that desperate times call for desperate measures. And so, man, Jairus, his daughter is dying. He's not, his faith isn't in a physician at this moment. It's in Jesus. And so he swallows his pride, and he swallows his position, and he runs to Jesus, and he lays down at his feet. Now, I would just note something here. When Jennifer called me that, that day when John Owen was three years old, and I left the church, do you think that I drove home and like obeyed all the speed limit laws? Now, some of you are like, oh, but Zach, you never obey the speed limit laws. You speed, don't you? Listen, I drive a Toyota Tacoma. It does the best that it can. I've never gotten a speeding ticket in that truck. Just think about that, right? Um, that day, coming home, I guarantee you, I got there as fast as I could, and I got my wife and my kid in the car, and I got to the hospital as fast as we safely could. There was an urgency about it. And in times of desperation... There ought to be urgency. We, 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 in, in desperation, just like Jarius, there ought to be an urgency about us that, that we would we, we realize there's, there's a realization of desperation so that we run to the one who can heal, the one that can help us. Now, here comes the issue. Whether you are on the top of the mountain or you are in the depth of the valley either, either you are having the greatest kind of season of your life or you're having the worst season of your life there is a truth that you actually are in a state of urgency and maybe you don't know it here's what here's what the bible tells us the bible tells us in james that life is but a vapor that no one knows the day or the hour. So do the will of God. I, I, I remember a sermon that my childhood pastor preached one time. We all were together one Sunday. It was just a normal week. And the next Sunday, he preached a sermon entitled, What a Difference a Week Makes. Because in one week's time, there were three people who were in a worship service smaller than this one who died. And he had either done funerals or had the funerals to do. And so he said, what a difference a week makes. We do not know the day or the hour. We're not promised another minute. And so, remember, I, I've said over and over and over that Jesus didn't come primarily to fight a physical battle, but a spiritual one. That we are in the middle of a spiritual world, a spiritual realm, realm in which we are in desperate need of Jesus. And if you don't, and if you do have Jesus, is what you need to know that the people, other people around you, 
are in a desperate need of Jesus. So we ought to be a people much like Jairus who lives with urgency. Desperate times call for desperate measures. So also be true for this woman. Listen. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And so this would be very normative as Jesus was going for people to press in around him. Remember, people did extreme things, like tearing roofs off of, uh, of houses and lowering people down to try to get them in relationship to Jesus so that Jesus could heal them. And so people pressing around would have been normal. And this woman who is considered unclean, who is considered an outcast, who it would be wrong for her to approach a man like this, runs up from behind him and touches the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge ceases. It's her desperation. It's, it's desperate times call for desperate measures. And she has spent everything she has. She wants it to stop. She wants to be healed. And so she goes and she, she makes a dash for it and she touches him. And somehow Jesus knows it. He said, who was it that touched me? Now this, this may have been intimidating. I kind of read this as like intimidating. Like, who touched me? But it seems to be more of a measure of, of, of a gracious a measure of, of mercy because of his response. Now, Peter, being Peter, is like, boss, there's people all around you. A bunch of people touched you. What are you thinking? Peter. Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people, why she had touched him. So she had, she proclaimed, she had a profession. I needed healing. I needed salvation. I was desperate for it. I've been bleeding for 12 years. And as soon as I touched his robe, it stopped. Immediately healed. And then listen to what he says to her. When I say it's merciful, it's gracious, this is what he says. He calls her daughter. It's the only time in Scripture that Jesus called anybody daughter. There's a decent chance that this, this lady was older than him. If she'd been bleeding for 12 years, Jesus was 33. There's, there's a decent chance she was past her mid-20s, right? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so here's my next big idea, is that desperation leads you to do daring things. Desperation leads you to a boldness. True desperation, true need of a miracle will lead you to do daring things. Now, I want to show you something. She had very unperfect faith. Her faith was not perfect. Her faith wasn't right. She actually gets it wrong. She thinks, if I can just touch his garment, I can be saved. As if the power lies in his garment. Let me tell you something. It didn't. 
It wasn't in his garment. Now, we see this later on in the New Testament in the book of Acts. We see the apostle Paul and the other apostles, and they're going around, and, and God's doing mighty things, and the Spirit is manifesting and doing these great works, and we see people touching garments and being healed. But the faith is in Jesus. Her faith was not perfect. She didn't have it right. We don't come to Jesus with right theology. We don't, we don't come to Jesus with theologians. We don't come to Jesus with this full grasp and understanding of every ounce of Scripture. With every doctrine and making sure that we're, we're pure and we're orthodox. No, we often come to Jesus with, with misconceptions about the Bible. And it is okay because our faith doesn't have to be perfect. Because we have a perfect Savior. There's where the perfection lies. The perfection lies in Jesus, not in every dot and iota that we have. Remember, the legalists, the Pharisee, they knew the dot and the iota. They knew every little thing, but they missed Jesus. Their faith wasn't in Jesus. And so here's this desperate woman who wants her faith to, to who wants her healing to stop, place her faith in Jesus, and she realizes she has seen him do things. She has seen people here healed by him probably she has heard more than likely that he came is his statement that he came to heal heal the blind to to cause the 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 lame to walk to free the oppressed like she's heard this announcement she probably knew this is probably a, a jewish woman who knew oh man jesus though they they said that when he was at that other synagogue that he quoted uh, isaiah and he's saying he's the one who's come and he's the one who's coming to heal and so her faith is going this is my shot and meanwhile, I'm not supposed to do this, and this is not right for me to do as an unclean person. I'm going to shoot my shot. I'm going for it. And she goes for it. And listen, look, look, this is beautiful. That Jesus stops in that moment and is compassionate to her. That, that in her situation of desperation, he pauses. He's compassionate. And he says to her, daughter. In, in that saying of daughter, in her calling her that, he's saying like, you have come to faith. You are now a child of God. The king of kings and lord of lords loves you. And Paul's is in this moment to, to heal her, and she's healed. He's, he's compassionate in the moment. There's mercy and grace. While many of the, the Jewish people of the day would have believed that it was her sin that caused her to bleed, Jesus would not have believed in that, but he would have believed in original sin, that she was born with sin and full grasping and understanding of our sinful nature. She doesn't do anything to deserve it. To earn it, she doesn't buy her salvation. She doesn't go to Jesus and say, hey, let me give you the things I have to heal me. Every other healer she went to, and they, they said, here, give me your money and I'll heal you. And they didn't. Jesus didn't, didn't come at, at a cost. It wasn't like, hey, come and, and tithe and I'll heal you. Come give me a certain percentage of your money and I'll heal you. That's not how salvation works. Salvation is... By grace through 
faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one may boast. This is Jesus' mercy and grace. This daughter, this sister of ours needed to be healed. And Jesus stopped and healed her. Her desperation led her to be daring. This morning I'm going to dare to do something. And I had hoped that I would get this um, out of the way in the first service. But I, um, I, I said this in the first service, but the person wasn't watching. I'm going to put my neck out here and, and hope that this person doesn't uh, cut my head off. But we have a dear lady in our church, her name is Kathleen Stevens. She has been a part of our church since the very first day. We met her on our launch Sunday, and for many a Sunday, she has sat right here. And Kathleen is in a situation that is desperate. Um, she's been diagnosed with a form of blood cancer. Her body is, is producing too many um, red blood cells. And, and she's beginning to take like the first stages of uh, an oral chemotherapy that's going to lead down this long road that she has to go. And she also has some complications with her heart. Now, Kathleen is the type of person who would hate the fact that I told you that. And I've been biting my tongue on it for weeks. But she's not here. She actually messaged Jennifer this morning and said, Hey, I'm not going to be there today. I'm feeling really sick because of my medicine. I'm going to watch online. So... Kathleen, I hope you're watching online. I know, hope you know that I love you and our church loves you. And in desperation, I'm asking our church body to pray for Kathleen, to ask God to do a miracle here. So in the middle of the service, I'm going to pause and we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me right now for Kathleen Stevens. So Father, we come to you. Lord, thinking that you can heal, that you have the power to heal. And Lord, I lift up Kathleen to you. And I ask you to move and work in her body and in her life. And Lord, that you would heal her and you would do with her life far more abundantly than we would ever ask, imagine, or think. Lord, I pray that our church would be the church to her and that we would serve her and wrap our arms around her and love her. And Lord, that you would receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Through her trial, Father, would you bring other people to faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you imagine being Jarius right here? Here's your daughter who's on her deathbed. And this woman who's come up has now paused Jesus from coming to see her, coming to, to be able to heal her. Can you imagine what that would feel like? I have to think that if it were my kid, that I would be like, Stupid woman. I would think that my prejudices and my elitism and my pride would begin to come out of me. And I would be disgruntled. But man, here's the truth, man. Jesus shepherds all of his sheep. And he is a sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, powerful God. And, and he just, he's got, he can carry more than just one burden at a time. He can carry all of our burdens and all of our cares. We can cast our cares on him in desperation. We can come to him. And so listen what happens. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone said from the ruler's house, 
came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And can you imagine what that felt like in his heart? Jairus' heart. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Notice again, look at the operative word, believe. Here we're back to faith. It's your faith has made you well. Now it's saying, believe in, believe and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James. That's John and James, uh, the, the sons of Zebedee, also called the sons of Thunder. This wasn't James's brother. That's his, this is like inner three circles, though he had no favoritism. He did have an intimacy with those three greater than the twelve. And the father and the mother of the child. And so he enters with these three. Um, plus the mother and the father. And man, there's a lot of speculation of why he did this. Um, you know, there's, at the end of this, it, he, he charges them to tell no one. There's speculation as to why did he tell them to tell no one. And, and ultimately, I think it's because it wasn't his time yet. It wasn't... It, it, he, he was holding things. In his sovereign time and in his sovereign plan, he was doing this act of mercy, and he did not need it to be in the presence of others. Man, he had the mourner stand outside. And so it says all were weeping and mourning for her. Um, what would have been customary in something like that at, at, a, at a death is that mourners would begin to gather, and they would gather outside of the house. Um, Culturally, when that would happen, when you would see mourners kind of getting uh, other people that maybe not even be close to the situation uh, would come by and they would begin to, to, to mourn your neighbors, other people in the community. It was, it was, it was part of the cultural norm. There was a bit of, of theatrics to it. I mean, they, they were kind of over the top. They would well, they would do these things that, that were expressions. And some of them did not have a meaningful relationship probably, while obviously the mother and, and, and father did. And so he says, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now, I imagine this to be the mourners outside the house that were laughing. You know, in our world, we are very unfamiliar with death. We separate ourselves from death. We don't have to deal with death. Most, most people have never... Uh, touched a, a dead body. Um, that would not be true for their culture. They were familiar with death. Most most um, countries in the world are familiar with death. It's in o in overdeveloped countries that that were not, and they would have known death. They would have known what it was like to look at somebody and to see uh, the way that their skin looked, to see the dilating. Uh, dilated eyes to, to feel how balmy they, they felt. They would have known that she was dead. And so Jesus says she's only sleeping. I, I, I don't think he's saying, you guys have it wrong. I think he's, he's letting you know he's about to wake her, awake her. He's about to, to heal her. And so this is what he does after they laugh at him. He takes her by the hand and he says, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And then look at this more compassion. Jesus is like, this girl's been sick for days. Give her something to eat. She needs food. This is her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one who, what had happened. 
Here's my next big idea is that desperation can lead to salvation. Jairus's desperation that led to his daughter's healing. That day in the emergency room, I was holding John Owen down, and I watched that needle go in his back, and I watched that spinal fluid came out. Come out. I was in desperation. And the doctors had, had met with us that day. And, that, and just, just minutes prior to that, and said, if he has spinal meningitis, it will be bad. It will be very bad. And Jennifer and I both interpreted that to mean he will die. I didn't just sit there and leave my child in the hands of the doctors. But I prayed and I begged and I pleaded with God. I fell at Jesus' feet. And I remember the prayer that I prayed in that moment. I knew the battle, over two-year battle that we had gone through to bring James home. And James was home. And he had been there three days, and it seemed like in this moment, could God take my other son? And I said to God, I said, God, if you choose to take my son, you're still good. And the moment this child was born, I gave him over to you, and I said, he is yours. And so if you take him home, I trust your sovereign plan and your sovereign will. But Lord, I'm begging you don't. I remember begging God to give me the opportunity to raise my child. Five minutes go by. The doctor comes in the room and goes, good news. He doesn't have spinal meningitis. You're free to go home. <laughs> okay. I didn't know what to do with that. I've got questions like, no, I, here's the truth. I don't know. I don't know if he did and the Lord healed him. I, I, I don't know. I would, I would say odds are he, he, was ex, he was exposed to it, but I would say the odds are he just didn't have it. There's no explanation. We don't know why he was running the high temperature, why his head was hurting, why he threw up. I don't know any of that. But I, I know that in my desperation, I cried out for salvation. Remember I told you Daryl Casey was still in the hospital fighting for his life. And he would go on to be in, I don't remember how many days he was in. I think he was in intensive care, like 23 days or something. There were hundreds of people crying out and asking God to heal him. God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign hand. I had a funny text message conversation with Daryl Casey this morning telling him I was talking about him in my sermon. He, he kind of sent back a, eesh, like, uh, it's like, better subject matter. No, the subject matter is Jesus. Um, you know, the Lord chose to spare both John Owen and Daryl, and I'm thankful. John Owen and Daryl. And Jarius' daughter and that other woman, they all have something in common. They all will die. 
Jairus' daughter and that woman, the Lord healed them in that moment. But that healing is temporary. They're dead. They died. We, we, can, we can get all caught up on healing and think that healing and healing is it. And we will be healed, but you're still not going to live forever. There's a day in which death comes. And every one of us in this room is going to have a time appointed that we die. And there is an urgency to our situation, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not. And so here's what I want to tell you. Notice I put can in there. Desperation can lead to salvation. But it does not necessarily lead to salvation. I think what desperation does is desperation leads you to dependence. We live in a world, particularly here in the Mountain West, where we have this independent mountain mindset where we think we can do it on our own. We can be strong enough on our own. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can overcome. There is a solution. So we trust in ourselves. There's others, though, that, man, they're so, in so much pain and so much desperation. They end up turning to some sort of prescription drug, and that prescription drug leads to an addiction and a dependence, and that dependence in, ends up, and you go down a road, and that dependence didn't lead to salvation. It led down a path of destruction. And so my, my warning would be to turn to the right thing. Turn to, to turn to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can hear. Here's the other two things that, you know, I, I said this earlier, that, that Jairus' daughter and this woman, one of the things that I think, and including with Jairus, that I think they have in common right now is that they are in heaven. That they had eternal life. That their faith didn't just heal them in this moment on the earth, but it healed them in the eternal life, in the eternal realm. That they would have a relationship with Jesus that they would know him for eternity. That right now they are sitting in heaven crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That they are worshipped there. They are whole. That they are well. Desperation leads to dependence. I think, I think for the Christian, desperation ought to lead to dedication. That when the Lord has pulled you out of it and when you have seen what, what, whether... Or not, you have been healed of cancer, or you've had cancer, or maybe, maybe it was just your own sinfulness. Maybe it's um, a path of destruction you were on. But no matter what it is, in the moment of desperation, when you've run to Jesus and Jesus moves and work, it leads you to dedication. I had two conversations this week that stuck out to me. Last week... Um, I mentioned Carl Wilson, who in our church, who, who had had cancer, and he came to us with cancer. This may have been two weeks ago, but um, Carl had cancer. And Carl said that his cancer is the best thing that ever happened to him. When you hear him say that, you're like, whoa. You all remember what he looked like. You remember what he went through. You remember what he and Kiana, the burden that they bared. Carl would tell you. That his desperate moment caused him to be dependent on Christ. 
It caused him to run to Christ. And now Carl will tell you, I'm, he's dedicated to Christ. He wants to live for Christ. Uh, you, you probably noticed when you walked in, the church looks really different than it did two weeks ago. And uh, we, had a, we had a mission team here from uh, Severe Heights uh, Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, and they helped us with that. And their missions pastor, one of their missions pastors, his name's Chad Ward, he was here. And Chad, I had we've been working with Chad for months to uh, get this project done. And um, it was a blessing to work with that team. But Chad always wears a hat. And if he takes his hat off, you'll see why. He's got this massive scar on his head. And he's actually got a pick line still in his head. And he's got this hole in the back that you could, like my, one of my boys could fit their hands in. And he had a brain tumor. And that brain tumor caused all sorts of issues. And um, Chad went from being in incredibly good shape, running marathons, biking really long distances, to laying on his face in the hospital for nine weeks. Chad was a pastor when that happened. He'd given his life to serve the Lord, and he looks back and he goes, I thank God for my brain tumor. Because I laid on my stomach and I talked to God. Forever grateful for the work that the Lord did in my life through that brain tumor. And he is a living testimony to, to what God has done. And so the beauty is in our moments of desperation when we run to Jesus and he moves and he works. It can lead to salvation. I want to be careful here. Because, man, there, it doesn't mean that everybody who, who runs to Jesus in their desperation, that the Lord immediately pulls them out of that circumstance. It's often the circumstance and the trial that the Lord is using. Remember two weeks ago from the text, when we jumped over to James, uh, the parable of the sower. And we talked about the seed, and, and it's, it's the seed that perseveres at the end. It, remember when we said, James said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's going to have its full, full work in you, and it's going to make you more Christ-like. It's going to make you love Christ more. There is no ultimate earthly healing. Everybody has that day appointed to die. And there will be some who, who have cancer, who have this, who have that, who are in a tragedy, in a moment of desperation. We cry out in God's sovereign hand. He chooses to take them home. And so, Christian, you must live with urgency. You, you must live with urgency so that you are taking the gospel to those who need it desperately. That you don't put off Today, today for what you think you're going to have time to do tomorrow or tomorrow or the next day or the next day but you go to the Lord and for the person in the room who's yet to place their faith and trust in Jesus I just urge you to do it today there's no better day for salvation than this one don't put off for weeks to come what you can do today cry out today and say Jesus you are Lord and I am running to your feet. And I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I am a Jairus in need of a miracle. I am the woman who needs you to stop my bleeding heart.
Run to Jesus today and say, God, I am a sinner. And you are perfect. You are holy. Run to God and say, God, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins that I may live. Call Jesus Lord today. Believe in Jesus today and be saved. So, Father, we come to you as humble as I know how to come. As desperate as I can be. Asking you to do what only you can do. Seek and save the lost. Lord, I know there's people in this room. In different life stages, in different situations. Mourning loss. There's those with anxiety, those with depression, those with stress those in different stages of despair but there's also those who are fooled that don't know the despair that they're in and so Lord let us approach you today with urgency confessing that you are Lord do what only you can do today and grant faith intervene Lord comfort those who are in you who are casting their cares and their anxiety and their burdens on you. Oh, Lord, that we would be lowly. That we would strip ourselves of our pride and we would humble ourselves before you and that we would run to you. Lord, move and work in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.